Welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. It's Fuggo King here again, and this time I'm going to be talking to people who are crofting in Scotland. Now, when I moved up here 28 years ago, I had no idea what a croft was, and I admit I'm still a bit of a beginner. But for those of you who don't live in Scotland, or perhaps like me, have not investigated much, crofting is a great way for people to have land tenure, safety of tenure, maybe over families' generations. And sometimes if you're lucky, you get access to a new bit of crofting land to grow food, have animals. There's the Crofting Federation, which gives a lot of information that I am not going to try and share now. So you can look that up if you're interested. But what I wanted to do was speak to some people across the north of Scotland who are finding creative ways to live on a croft, creative ways of making a living and having food, looking at how crofting is changing with the generations as well. So I hope you enjoy it. Okay, I'm with Phil Knott, who's over in Skye, and uh, it's Wildlife Croft Skye that him and his partner are working and living. A little while ago, I asked about woodland crofts because it was a term I came across in uh, Reforesting Scotland magazine, uh, which is a charity I love to follow. And when I saw the term and the article woodland crofts, I gave a shout out to see if I could have a chat to someone about what is this? What does it mean? I'm going to put Phil on the spot slightly, but I'm pretty sure he can <laughs> he can answer some questions. So I guess to start with, yeah, it'd be lovely if you could just share a little bit about what you get up to on your croft. Yes, of course. And, and thanks for having me on. So we have a three hectare croft, so that's about 10 acres or so, um, rather challenging ground east facing so opportunities and problems with, with that as well but it's it's a croft that was planted up about 16 years ago maybe 17 years now under a woodland grant scheme so that's where you often kind of get a fence all the way around the outside and then it's planted up with a high density of trees with now essentially a forested um you see these schemes now and again we moved here eight years ago and so the trees were were eight or nine years old at that point it's still under condition of grant so we couldn't really do anything with the trees at that point it gives a few years to kind of observe and to plan and to, to think, well, what can we do with this now relatively sheltered and, and quite biodiverse space, but clearly in need of some management. We're keen to grow food. That's an important part of a crop management for us, but also managing for biodiversity. But they don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can absolutely be hand in hand. And that, that's when we set upon our idea of using the trees that we had on the croft um, for the shelter and the benefit and making them work quite hard, really, uh, as, as part of our croft system in order to get more food, more productivity, more fertility, along with a kind of a rising tide of biodiversity. So overall kind of a positive space. And that's, that's eight years in now. We're starting to see the fruits of our labours now. So it's not a short game that we've been playing here. We, we knew that from the start, but we're really starting to feel we're, we're on the right track. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'm a big fan of trees. Jeff and I moved to Scotland Oh, a long time ago, 28 years ago, and we moved in order to plant trees, basically. And as you say, the biodiversity. So you've inherited something that's already developing and evolving. Yes, it was a native broadleaf mix. There were a few pines within that mix, 
the provenance, kind of the sourcing of the trees, I'm not sure if it was necessarily as, as strict as it could have been these days. And so maybe some of them from the East Coast or from further south. There's certainly the timings uh, of the leaf uh, bloom of the trees when the flowers come out. And their resistance to some pestances seemed to be a bit lower than the native trees that were around us. And then potentially where some of them were planted uh, on the cross wasn't necessarily the best location. You always see the right tree in the right place. So some of the alders were not in the right place. Some of the pines weren't in the right place in terms of where they would really be most happy in terms of the soil and, and the waterlogging and things. And I think there may have been some stock or deer incursions within the fence in, before our time as well. And that maybe shaped some of the trees a wee bit, so I took some of the leaders out. But when, when we took it on, it was quite a, a diverse space. It wasn't just uniform, single pole trees of, of a standard age. There was a lot of structural diversity already. So that made it more interesting so aesthetically and, and for biodiversity. Great. And I understand you'd been interviewed by the Soil Association and uh, there was mention of you wanting to grow more trees from seed, perhaps from local provenance. Yeah, so I, I've certainly enjoyed growing trees. It started off as kind of a hobby, but I realised I wanted to, to add diversity to the planting we had here already. So make sure I could add lots of climbers and shrubs, lots of flowering native plants within that mix, useful plants as well to add to the structure. And then when, where I felt some areas weren't suitable for anything other than trees, I wanted to add some bits in. Again, from local provenance, a local seed that was collected. It's a kind of a fish box tree nursery, mm-hmm. uh, if you know what I mean, for a West Coast line, with fish boxes that wash up on the beaches and they're really good for growing things in particularly young trees and so every year i do a few thousand and now i'm at the stage of uh, having a small scale tree nursery to be able to sell to local crofters and other folk as well who are kind of keen and the advantage is that they're hardy and they're, they're local provenance and they're already salt tolerant so if you're buying things off the internet you don't know how they're going to cope but if you've got trees that have been slow grown outside without chemicals then it's you know you've got a better start uh, in life also, I was interested to read about how many moths there are, or you've been discovering an amazing amount of moths. <laughs> yes, so with the biodiversity, the I've always been interested in birds and insects and plants, the, the full range. Moths is kind of like a, a hidden biodiversity that we have. So in total on the croft now, butterflies, day flying, obvious things to see on, on the whole. Uh, I think we've had maybe 13, 14 species in our eight years. That's par for the course for up here, really, where we are. But we're now at nearly 300 species of moth. That's almost 20 times higher number. Uh, and they're incredibly diverse and colourful. So if you have a look through some of the resources that you can get for kind of Scottish uh, moths, there are so many. But they mostly remain hidden. But if you use moth traps or nets, then you can kind of find the ones that, that are incredibly hard to see. The caterpillars are very selective in where where they feed. They're often on single species. So some are just on older trees, some are just on birch trees, some on one particular type of grass. But we looked at the, the kind of the makeup of them here, and about half of the moths that we have here are tied to trees and shrubs. And we're the only trees in our township, essentially. And so that's kind of new biodiversity that's come in. So yes, there's there's wildlife in this area, of course, but we've added that in and then the birds have come along with it you see the natural succession from young trees to now what is getting towards mature trees that adds in all this extra biodiversity and that changes over time and moths are a great way of recording that i'm trying to find out how people survive on these crofts and i know you've you mentioned a little while ago that you have some work with organizations but what about earnings directly from the croft what kinds of things are you finding you're able to earn with or what would you like to earn with in the future? The type of food 
and drink doing from the croft. That's a long game we're playing on that. So we're getting a large number of fruit trees in. And we started that seven or eight years ago. And that's a bit of an experiment because there's not many folk with a croft that have kind of information as to what can thrive and survive here. Uh, it's not a standard crofting thing. Okay, walled gardens of big Victorian estates, maybe some gardens here and there have got fruit trees, but that's not the same as necessarily being out on a croft, which has been formerly quite heavily grazed pasture. Now, seven, eight years down the line, I can see that, you know, it's okay with the right amount of shelter and just a little bit of love and, and, and a keen eye as to what a tree might need. Um, we're now at kind of 50 fruit trees in the ground. I'm now grafting my own because they're expensive. Fruit trees are very expensive to, to buy, but I, I do encourage people to learn the skills to, to graft because it's something you can pick up relatively easy. And then that brings the cost right down. And that gives you a lot more flexibility and confidence. You're not having to worry about 30 or 40 pound fruit trees um, when it's blowing a gale outside and um, you know, are they going to eat my rabbits with my voles? If, if it cost you two or three pounds, then it's uh, a little bit easier to factor in. But shelter is the key to that. We haven't got a business plan tied in with that. We need to see exactly how much fruit that can produce. Because if you've got a standard model somewhere else where it's more productive ground, you can kind of start expecting how many apples you're going to get and what you're going to do with them. You tend to have to add value to those kind of things. So you have to either process them into juices or ciders or chutneys or jams or, or fruit leathers or something like that. Yes, there's some direct sales of, of fruit but you're competing against a commodity-driven world and supermarkets and things, and people expect a certain price for apples, where in reality, that would be more of a challenge here. But there's no reason why we can't have good juice or, or cider and then still supply some of the local shops. But in terms of the income that, that drives, it's more the supply of fruit trees probably will be more of a thing, particularly varieties that will be suited to the West Coast. Mostly apples. Apples seem to be the hardiest thing here. People want cherries and plums and, uh, and pears and things, and they can work. But you've got to look to actually what can start here first and then build that up. And so a lot of people have seen our resources, uh, our Instagram or some of the videos that we've done, and are now asking us, can we come and see your fruit trees and things? So education and tours can be a part of our income as well. And then almost kind of consultancy based on that as well. I do a lot of mentoring for the farm advisory service as well, mostly around fruit and kind of diversity as well as biodiversity. And so our croft is now getting a lot of attention as, as folks look towards diversification of their croft. And that's the key, key thing to stress for us is that it is food as well, or food, fuel and fibre as we're actually producing, really. Uh, my partner does basketry willow as well. That's another good use of uh, the croft. Our own firewood, charcoal, wood chip, all these kind of things that, that add layers in, all while the, the fertility and the shelter of the croft improves year on year and gives us more options. Yeah, it does interest me to hear about how much variety there is, how much is possible on a relatively small piece of land on as you said not terribly fertile or sort of promising at first look perhaps and that perhaps a lot more could be done or you know it's good for folk like yourselves to be showing what others can do I know you mentioned obviously the fruit trees that's important I had understood that under woodland grant schemes that fruit trees might not be included in that but I might be wrong there is that something you know more about? Uh, so there's there's different packages under the forestry grant scheme. There's quite a few good options, but I don't think fruit trees are included in that. However, there is a new agroforestry package coming out as part of the Scottish Forestry's forestry grant scheme. And so that might apply across the work. We've got to see the details yet. It was only announced just a few weeks ago, but it does specifically mention fruit and nut trees as part of that. So we'd like to, to think, I'd like to hope, the crofters could maybe have shelter belts or individual trees 
basically give the flexibility. I think the key thing of, of those schemes is the flexibility. So hopefully with the schemes going forward, crofters, farmers, uh, smallholders can maybe get some assistance to really start to plan what would be an agroforestry system. There's all these terms that are used these days, but essentially integrating trees into the landscape. And but it could be with stock uh, as well. So continuing with the livestock would be ideal. Obviously, with shelter belts and things, you'd probably have to give away a few meters for that. But that'd be for the benefit of the stock as well. So it's extra forage for them, uh, as well as shelter and shade. Yeah, all things I totally agree with and fully understand. And it is being in for the long game, as you say. But actually, it's not that long. What you're describing has happened fairly quickly to me. You know, when people say, oh, you plant a forest for your grandchildren, but the trees we've planted here are mature and we coppice and yeah, the, the huge difference that we and our visitors notice in the shelter, as you say, shade, just water retention when it's dry. Yeah, a huge amount of benefits. Once they start touching branches, um, you know, because when they, they're first growing, especially on the West Coast, they got all the light that they need and they're in quite a difficult ground. They're very, very slow. But as soon as they kind of the roots touch and the branches touch, they really start to shoot up because they realize they're in a race for light. So that's quite dense planting that needs that. But I think we on the West Coast, we do need to have a, a dense planting. But the negative thoughts against trees is that you're giving up land and that's that's all you're foresting land and it's, it's not worth anything after that. But you can manage trees uh, and that's what we're doing. We don't want to live in a dense woodland. We want it to be a productive space. We love trees but I will be coppicing and pollarding and then felling across my unit because the trees are going to get bigger and they'll need to be thinned out for that. But I want to manage them and use them. They're going to have to work hard here. That's not to the detriment of biodiversity because they grow back. They have higher leaf cover. There's more solar energy coming in. Trees on the West Coast, you know, if you're too sheltered, okay, you've got all the benefits to livestock, but you're also going to make a midge trap as well, a midge haven. So you need to have the right balance. And for shelter for fruit trees or for horticulture or for livestock, it only has to actually be 10 feet. And we've got polytunnels stuck in the middle of our trees. In the, the summer, it has all the sun it needs. You wouldn't think so, but then you get the angle right and actually, you know, it gets all the sun it needs, but it's surrounded by trees. And so I'm confident, even in the strongest winds, that that is okay. I wouldn't put a polytunnel anywhere else on sky. Yeah, well, with the height of the sun... You know, we're so far north, the light, as you say, you don't need to worry too much. You might have a bit of trouble with overwintering salads, perhaps. But <laughs> have you thought about timber for building? Is it that kind of timber, sort of sm- perhaps small scale structures? So the, the initial planting of the trees here, um, because it's quite exposed, it does tend to be a bit gnarlier than the first set of trees. But in terms of planking material, I don't think we're going to get much out of it. And realising that... We don't necessarily think that's going to be the best use of our ground. But in terms of kind of smaller scale stuff, particularly, you know, the alders, the birch, sycamore, hazel poles, all these kind of things for small scale structures, garden structures. Uh, and we, we've we've given away quite a lot of our alder as well to a smokehouse that does organic smoked salmon and things like that. There's all these little things you didn't even think of as a product. You can smoke anything with uh, applewood, of course, and oak, uh, beech. All these things are really good smoking materials, let alone... Uh, Hazel rods are particularly useful for small-scale structures, bean poles and, and the like. And even things like walking sticks, you know, if you get top-end ones and you get them really well-shaped, I'm sure there'll be local makers. And if there aren't local makers, then hopefully there will be in future. Those kind of things, once you've got an abundance of local products, very hard to source them at the moment and you can be the supply. Yeah, well, it's good to hear that thought that you're gradually working with your local community 
across Sky and the west coast of Scotland and possibly, yeah, tapping into things you hadn't really thought about. You've mentioned your partner does basket work, I think you said. Yes, we, we grow our own basket willow. So that was something we started off not as early as, as the fruit trees. You can get lots of rods in, basically you just grow them for cuttings as it comes in beds, quite tight beds. So they grow up very tall and thin because you want an unbranched, thin stem. And you get lots of different types of willow, lots of different colours of willow. And that's becoming more and more popular. You know, the demand is, is local demand. Is, you think it might be something for, for tourists, um, but actually for baskets. And even for the rods themselves, because people want to make their own baskets, it's kind of a skill that people have taken up. You can even learn these kind of things online or in local workshops. It's something that's, that's very kind of wholesome and enjoyable. And again, the training aspect and just bringing people into that space is, is a, a big part of us going forward. What I'm hearing is all really interesting and great, and I hope other people will be interested too. So much appreciation for your time, and uh, I look forward to come to visit someday. Thank you. Welcome anytime. I've learnt a bit more about what a woodland croft might consist of, and I'm really excited to get to Sky at some point to see what Phil has been up to, what he's achieved. I know they offer tours and uh, mentoring as well as trees, so there's a link with the text of the podcast so that you can find them. I was also lucky enough to visit Beth Rose in person rather than have to do it all on Zoom. So I went to Strathnairn to hear about her family's experiences. Hello, we're here today in Strathnairn near Inverness and I'm at Birchwood Croft. So I'm here with Beth. We've had a, a lovely walk around. I've been shown some of the animals and extent of the croft. So I wondered first, how did you come to live here? So we looked around quite a lot for a croft. There were a few coming up. We did try and put in for a few, weren't successful and then... Tim found this one, so we came and had a look, tried again, and we got it. We were in Edinburgh at the time, so then it was about a year before I got a job at Rigmore, um, and then we could move up. Fantastic. So this has been a kind of a long-term plan, a, a hope to live on the land more. Yes, it was probably more of Tim's dream was to work the land. It's not something that I had really contemplated. I was a theatre nurse in Edinburgh, so it was a... I knew when I met him, this was what his dream was to work the land. And then, yes, the rest is history. And now you have children as well. And I kind of gathered that you spend a lot of your time here or you're involved very largely in being on the land and growing and processing things here. Yes. So we've now got two boys who are six and four. So I went on a career break after having the first one and was then just spending all my time here. I then had Donald still here. I've been working for the Scottish Crofting Federation on the side, but it is mainly me here doing it all. Tim works offshore, so it is still very useful for when he is home. But yes, it is pretty much just here, pottering about, really. <laughs> I think it's more than pottering because I've seen how many cattle you have and I know you've got a small amount of chickens, you've got a fantastic polytunnel, yeah, barns. Did you say sheep as well? 
Yes, so we've got five five sheep, two of which are Icelandic. So we got them. Well, I got them for the wool. Mm-hmm. And with the wool, are you have you got plans? What plans do you have? <laughs> yes, hopefully. Um, one of the local spinning groups in Strathairn got me spinning. I wanted to learn to spin for years and then couldn't master it at all. But Glenda and Lynn took me on board, and got me set up with spinning wheels so I now really enjoy spinning have then started doing a bit of weaving so then started looking at if I could process my own wool um, rather than getting in someone else's so that was what got me looking down what would survive here so Icelandics seemed to fit the bill so I splurged a wee bit of the rare breed sale last year and bought two so I now have two fleeces in that hay shed that I I've got two plans for that will hopefully, one will do spinning and one might be a rug, but we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) I know with the cattle, you showed me the freezers that you've got and you obviously process and sell what you can within the restrictions that there are. What, What kind of things do you do? So beef is our main thing with the herd. We've varied between either usually one or the most we've done in one year was four beasts away. They're all born here, reared, and then we take them to the abattoir. They're butchered by Macbeth, who can follow all of the labelling. They blast, freeze it, and then we can sell it direct to Mm -hmm. consumers. We do have a website. I do use Instagram, but most selling is, oddly enough, through Facebook. And then it is just all local and probably within a 16-mile radius that our, our customers. Most of it is online. I tend to now put up every month, put up what the availability is. I think a lot of times people can think, oh, you must be out of beef, or it's not as easy for people to buy as it is from a supermarket. So it's trying to make sure that people know what stock we've got, that they know they can get in touch and just say, look, can I have a couple of packs of mints or a jar of honey? So Um, you're trying to keep it as local as you can? We do get some people from Inverness asking for deliveries and it works quite well because the boys are at the Gaelic school and I'm in town. We used to, kind of before lockdown, we did market stalls, not your farmer's markets, but more community markets that were great for chatting to people because you can, even if you've got a lot of people liking your page, you can still be fairly anonymous and people just don't know that you're there. (laughs) Um, So the community markets were quite useful. We have struggled to do them because it does take two of us to do the gazebo, to do the sales, etc. And then now that the boys are at the age they are, it's a lot harder than to manage two boys and a market stall. So that's why we've kept it more to just the deliveries. Everything's individually priced. So people can just buy a small amount, people can buy a large amount. It is what people prefer. So that's the main thing that we've done with the cows on the side, I have milked two of them, but our house cow got retired. But that is something of a future <laughs> dream if I had spare time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, I can see there's a lot going on. So spare time is not necessary because I know you have bees as well and you've planted in amongst you because you've got areas of crops that you... You know, one of the boys said he wanted more oats, so you've got oats and rye out there and and lots of wildflowers as well. Yes, it was a section that the pigs had been on last, well, two years ago, 
The oldest one wanted porridge, so <laughs> so we planted oats. So we now have a threshing machine and a winnowing machine. We struggled a wee bit with the processing of the oats, so we then had someone come last year who he had rye to put through the threshing machine. So that was fairly successful. So this year we've tried rye, we've got wheat, and then a variety of different oats, and then around it we've put in fallacia and mustard purely just for bees. Because you've also got a little orchard that you showed me too, where you've got the hives and and it is there's woodland here on the croft. I mean, it's thirty five acres. You said there's quite a variety. Yes, so some of it, particularly for the bees, at the minute I think we're on four colonies. But yes, for the bees, a lot of it is trying to find between the kind of the fruit for the fruit trees between their blossoms and say the feed over the summer. So that's where it's been quite nice for between. Say the old trees, we've put in 5,000 new trees of native woodlands. And there's heather on the hills around, I'm seeing, yes. I'm guessing they would. The heather has just started coming out, so that's the usual thing of then hopefully, now that the mustard's about gone, it's just in time for the heather, and then they can bring us heather honey. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I guess I'm interested in, are you planning to persevere and develop what or why would you want to keep doing that rather than, say, going back to nursing or... We both like knowing where our food has come from. We both like working the land, working with the nature around us. So a lot of it is just trying to work out what works, in a sense, what works for the environment. There's certain things that we can grow, there's certain things that we can't grow, we have tried doing veg boxes. It can vary if people then say they don't like particular things. But then we found we could do, say, a mixed box. So it would be, say, a Sunday dinner roast type of thing. So that worked quite well. And I guess maybe just one more thought or one more question is, uh, what's your favourite thing about being here? Oh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a lot of things. I think something that I've done is just being able to just sit and watch things. It's learning that you don't have to always have your head down working. You kind of think if you're in an office, you can miss quite a lot of things. I mean, the other day I stood at the window and the sparrowhawk went past. So you wouldn't necessarily see that if you were sat at a computer. There's a lot of things I wouldn't see if I wasn't outside working it. And then I think you're just then in touch with the seasons. Each season can have its moments, don't get me wrong. But you can you know the benefit of that one and you think, right, actually I'm just going to enjoy the one I'm in. I'd really miss that if I went back to other jobs. Oh, thanks, Beth. Thanks so much both for showing me around and agreeing to have a chat. And I know it's a bit being put on the spot, but well done. (laughs) Thank you. Refreshed and loaded with Beth's delicious chutneys, I'm finally off on a trip to Rogart to chat to Maddie, who's taken the leap to work full time on the croft. I'm very glad to be sitting inside at the moment as it's pouring with rain outside (laughs) and I'm here with Maddie in her kitchen and we've had coffee and what did you call these cakes? Anzacs. Anzacs. So I'm sugar fueled and ready to go. (laughs) Massively unhealthy, although the fruit and the nuts in them make them slightly healthier. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. So I've come to visit up near the edge of Rogut 
And this is where Maddie has been full time on the Croft mm-hmm. now for ooh, two years now. Two years, yep. yeah. So when we first met, you were giving up your job and you're going to be full time. You're renting the use of the Croft mm-hmm. from your mum. Yep, tenanting. Tenanting, sorry, that's yeah. the word. It's done through the Crofting Federation still and it has a setup yeah. that works. Yeah. So, yeah, I just wondered to start with, how's it going being (laughs) full-time? It's going really well. It's so much fun being on the croft all day, every day, and seeing the seasons changing and getting really to grips with it. Because before, when we met, I was working on the fish farm. I was working nine till five there, but then the commute kind of started at six and I'd get home at six. So there'd be like those couple hours either end to get everything done and at weekends and it's just not a great way of doing it but while I was on there I was thinking of all of the ways that I could be making the craft work for itself so when I did quit my job and I'd been doing all the courses like the Charles Dowding the dig course and going to the natural veg company to learn about market gardening and spinning courses foraging courses everything that I could do and fit into my days off when I got here I hit the ground running I had a real plan of what I wanted to achieve so yeah, the first year was really good. I had a whole flowchart system. I had lists. I had like check boxes for what I wanted to do, like upgrade the cabins because we rent two cabins on Airbnb on the Croft. Then there was upgrading our fencing system for the pigs so that we could rotate them underneath the oak trees, sowing more wildflower seeds and everything had a breakdown on it so that I knew exactly what I needed to do each day. So that went really, really well. And then <laughs> then I, I think I got a bit too comfortable and this year's been a little bit more <laughs> chaotic, but still good. <laughs> well, it sounds like as you're settling into what works and what doesn't or what you want to mm-hmm. see happen and what you don't want to do again, yeah, that you're perhaps not needing that exactness. Yeah, I definitely found so the last year was a kind of test on the market garden. I wanted to see if I could produce enough on the land that I had to go to the things like the local markets as well as producing veg boxes for the Airbnb guests and perhaps a little bit for locals and enough for my own pantry. So I've worked out I can produce enough for my own pantry and the Airbnb guests quite happily. But more than that is a little bit of a struggle, especially seasonally growing. So I've taken a step back to kind of reassess how I can grow enough for things like markets and other local demand and come up with some more and very exciting ideas with annual perennial beds, food forest systems in the centre of the croft, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't done the the kind of test year and hadn't had the time full time on the croft to think about it and to get hands on with it. So yeah, the first year has influenced and um, informed what I've started to do in the second year. And I can see more of a plan kind of forming for the next three, four years. It sounds very like a permaculture approach where you're not expecting things to happen instantly. Mm -hmm. And while you've got a business head on, you've also got very much an observational heart, if you like. Yeah, and things that if I'm not interested in something, if I try something and I find that it's really, it's not grabbing me, why would I spend my time chasing (laughs) it? Like pottery, I got really into pottery at the start of this year and I really did enjoy it, but I found it was using so much of my time. It wasn't going to end up being a viable stream to go down if I was going to make money and do everything else that I wanted to do. But it's something I'll come back to at some point. Um, So are you still 
doing all this yourself or do you get other people involved at times? It's just me at the moment. I think I probably would benefit from having more volunteers on the ground or even just someone, one when she's here, she helps um, obviously tackle a lot of the craft jobs, picks up my slack. (laughs) (laughs) I certainly would benefit from having some volunteers, but I've got it kind of in my head. It's almost like having to teach someone how to do something might take up more time when I could just do it myself. So I think that's another hurdle I certainly need to tackle. In the first year as well, because I had that huge list of everything I needed to do, I knew how quickly or how slowly I could do it. So I had a very clear timeline of how long things would take. And in the second year, I found myself relaxing a little bit more. So if I managed to let that relax more again, then I'll be able to get other people involved to help me. I'm kind of interested as well if you've considered maybe not a teaching role, but in a kind of open day or sharing Mm -hmm. of skills yeah it is so I I lack confidence for a long time in actually knowing anything like who am I to tell people how to do things but then over these last two years having visited so many people and I've just got this job with the Fern Free Food Garden helping at their community garden as a project coordinator so I've been running a few workshops there and I've realized that I do actually know quite a bit about stuff <laughs> And so, yeah, definitely doing some more teaching roles is on the card. I I also feel like sometimes it's really good for people to learn from someone who's only just been through it or yeah. has seen some of the reality pitfalls or mm-hmm. had to just work it out as they went along sometimes. Yeah. The yeah, practical kind of hands-on approach of it. And it's like, I've just done this, so it didn't work. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa, it worked really well. So. <laughs> so I'm also interested in the actual things that you're selling. You've mentioned the vegetables and mm-hmm. how far you can make that go. What about produce? So things made from the vegetables. We did uh, jams. I did quite a lot of chilli jams and chilli relishes. They actually went down like a storm at the last market that I did. I really like growing chilies because it's a challenge in the North Islands. <laughs> One of the most difficult things, I think, to grow. But I'm like, I've got to do it. I just really want to grow chilies. I want to grow loads of different varieties. I don't particularly like hot things either, but for some reason, <laughs> just obsessed with them. So... I made some really nice chilli jams and relishes and yeah, I've got really good feedback. I sold out at one market. So yeah, the chilli jams are kind of what I'm focusing on at the moment, just because you can make a lot of it from a very small amount of chilies. Whereas if I was to do something like ferments involve more EHO kind of, they get a bit antsy about things being alive. Whereas if it's a jam, it's very shelf stable. It's not very high risk. Yeah, because this this is something that, especially selling through local markets, yeah. something you have to be aware of and yeah. the markets have to keep on top of. Absolutely, yeah. They've got strict regulations and, yeah, understandably food does too. So one of the things I did in the first year was set up a food safe place to prep everything. It's in the process of being signed off by the EHO, so that's that box ticked. Can you just say what the EHO is? Oh, the Environmental Health Officer. Yeah, the Food Standards Scotland. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, Yeah, and we've been doing meat for quite a while. So we've got pigs grazing underneath the oak trees. We've got Hebridean sheep on the wildflower meadows. 
We used to have cattle as well, but we just found that there's not quite enough ground to keep them on. If we did, we'd have to keep them indoors over the winter and because we had Shetland cattle, they had the horns and they'd poke at each other and it all just got a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> but yeah, the pork and the lamb, we butcher ourselves. But I have a friend who's got a restaurant, so I use his kitchen because it's got all of the kit that you need and it's easy to clean and everything. And then we do all the proper labelling and sell that. Um, although we've slowed down a little bit because a lot of the stuff I was making when I was selling it, I was like, I want to eat that. <laughs> I was selling out too quickly. <laughs> so, and we're slowing down on the pigs as well because feeding them's just got so expensive lately. Yeah, it is definitely an issue and, and things change all the time. Yeah. So you have to be prepared to be flexible. Yes. Yeah. That sounds like what a a modern crofter mm-hmm. I mean I'm not saying crofters from years ago didn't have to be flexible mm-hmm. but I've heard some of the older generations say we've always had our sheep and we've always had the cows yeah. and we've always had this as grazing land and why do we have to plant trees and yeah. what's biodiversity <laughs> this is just a, a minority perhaps who are feeling a bit put upon yeah. and pushed in a different direction and they're not comfortable with it but it sounds from people I've talked to that there is a lot of opportunity if you can get the land yes then the some of the funding and support that you can get yeah is changing yeah the funding's definitely changing it's all up in the air right now with brexit and everything it's a lot of the grants are slim on the ground a lot of the things that we had when we started up uh, nine years ago don't exist anymore so it would be a lot more difficult for a young crofter to get involved now but I also think like the big crofts that have sheep and cattle like they're set up for that they've got the machinery for that they have that monoculture that they do which is what they know how to do and they do it on a large scale and they do it probably quite well but Cory Meadows 62 acres which is a huge amount but the majority of it is birch woodland And it's not something I'm going to fell in order to make more grazing because I think there's more productive ways to use it. But you end up having to kind of pull all of these strings into one pile where you've got so many different income streams that might not float you as a singular thing, but they will when they all join together. So with the birch trees, there's lots of chaga growing on them. So I go and harvest the chaga and then I can dry it and sell that at the markets, which is really useful. We get lots of mushrooms growing under them. We can graze the pigs under them if we need to rotationally. The heather meadows that we've got, the bees absolutely go wild for them. We get a heather honey crop off them. So even though it looks like it's not traditionally productive ground, it is still being really productive. And all of the hedgerows that we've planted, we've made sure that they're native and things that you can harvest from them as well. So rose hips, elderberries, we've got pears and apples and crab apples and all of the hedges so that we've got a crop coming from them as well. Yeah, it's multiple income streams on a mixed produce, small scale agricultural unit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I think earlier before we started recording, you mentioned that you had some funding or some assistance with the hedge planting. Who was it? Who That was the Agri-Environment Climate Change Scheme. Is that one that still exists? It does, but they recently stopped doing hedgerows in Sutherland. So there's loads of things in it. So you can do wader mown grassland, you can do water margins and fields, um, ancient species rich meadows. There's loads of different boxes you need to tick and you need to have enough of them, enough points from what you're applying for to be able to get the funding. And the majority of my last application was hedgerows. They then messaged me to say, oh, we're not doing hedgerows in Sutherland anymore, or at least in Rogert. So that was that. When we first came here, we put the whole 
meadow underneath an agri-environment scheme. Every single field was in something. Mm. Yeah, all of the ones that I mentioned. But it meant that because we had these different units that we were managing for different schemes we needed to fence them so that we could have a grazing plan in place so we got all of our fencing funded through that and then we had our hedgerows funded through that as well some vole guards and tree guards and everything i've, um, I've heard that the woodland trust might yeah, still do i think they get involved a bit even if you're crofting they can advise okay um but i'm not sure that they can free trees I know that you can get huge discounts we got a load of hedgerows from the conservation volunteers they were doing a scheme called we dig trees so basically it's worth asking around talking to people being part of your local community yeah yeah. Um, which is a lot of what this is about yeah so the next podcast uh it's going to be about farm clusters Ooh, I know which is something I've yet to fully understand but more of that later the little bit i have gathered is that this is in an area where neighbors are working together as people always have in the Mm -hmm. past if your neighbor has something that you could use but don't have the money to buy then maybe you Mm -hmm. rent it borrow it swap it are those things that you've been able yeah. to get involved in? Crofting is about community. It's about working together for a common good, which is producing good food. I've got a neighbour coming at the weekend to cut my hay for me, which is awesome. And yeah, building a really strong community locally is, is important. But I find a lot of the alternative crofting practices, you have to spread your community a bit further. <laughs> but it's still good to keep in with everyone. And we've got great friends further afield as well who can help with their hands when they come and visit <laughs> in exchange good, for yeah. barbecues and wine and things. <laughs> uh, perhaps before we wind up, have you got a favourite thing about being here? I really love working with the bees <laughs> the bees are my obsession at the moment just I love them everything about them I'm contemplating just sowing one of our fields it's 20 acres it's just a wildflower field for bees so, I mean the honey that they produce everything about bees I'm just obsessed with yeah Rogert in general is a really amazing place to live it's really close to Inverness it's not far from the west or the north and those amazing places and it's warm enough that I can grow chilies in my polytunnel. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you could possibly need. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Thanks so much, Maddie. No problem. Thanks to all of the interviewees for talking to me. I'm very happy that we've been able to explore a little bit what living on a croft might be like. I am wondering if tenancy is the way to go. I mean, how many small parcels of land could be productive on a maybe a 62 acre croft how many people could live on that also you know, bringing a family to live on the land and the freedoms that there are can be a great way of life there's a lot of land in scotland who owns it as a whole other podcast perhaps maybe living close to the land gives us a chance to focus less on earnings more on biodiversity on family but Getting to work on the land can be tricky and hard work. The next podcast is going to be about farm clusters. Now there's another term I didn't know much about, but I'm going to learn something and I'm going to share that knowledge with you. This podcast is funded by the Highland Good Food Partnership, recorded by me, Fuggo King, edited by Rachel Butterworth, and the music 
was by Emma and Rachel Butterworth. Okay, thanks for listening. <laughs>